This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book under the covering title Shadows Cast Before, a series considering some outstanding characters in the scriptures. We are this evening continuing our consideration of the Apostle Paul as an earthen vessel. And it is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read together Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to the end of chapter 3. In our previous study, we were considering the term a vessel. And I reminded you, by quotations from Scripture, that we must not confine our thoughts to this sort of gallipot idea of a vessel. I drew your attention that what we would call a vessel, that is a ship, in Acts 27, it's the sail of the ship that's called a vessel. That's strange, isn't it? But you'll discover, if you look at the word and all its usages, that it means anything in the form of furniture, instrument, goods, anything that can be of service. So while the vessel may be an earthen vessel and therefore a piece of pottery, it can be of silver, it can be of gold, it can be of wood, it can be of earth, and it can be a sail of a ship or anything that is of service. Now this evening, we are turning our attention not so much to the vessel, uh, but the way in which God has used, or does use, and used this particular vessel we have in mind, the Apostle Paul. And so I quote from his own words, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And he goes on to explain one reason why, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. There is a danger that the earthen vessel may be so elaborately decked out that everybody is sitting gaping at the marvel of his eloquence or the beauty of his countenance or the list of titles he has after his name and forget that God has stooped to use earthen vessels that the excellency may be of God and not of ourselves. Well now this evening it will be rather an inventory. Well, that may not be very exciting. But I'm using these spare evenings before we settle down to a definite study again to collect certain items of scripture. And I don't think we shall find it's a bare list of things. There will come out of it points that I believe will be of service to us all. Now how does the Apostle himself speak of this ministry that was entrusted to him? This treasure that he spoke of, as in an earthen vessel. Well, the first thing we think of, and naturally it comes at the beginning, was that he had a gospel entrusted to him. You remember how in Galatians 1, he says, I'm an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. And if he stopped there, well, there'd be nothing in it. What good would it do us that he happened to be called an apostle? But an apostle had a message so he said, the gospel which I preach of you is just exactly the same, not, neither, and but. I neither received it, but, by revelation, the gospel. And then, thirdly, in the same chapter, he said, I preach Christ. He revealed his son. 
So I want to turn in the first case to Romans, the first chapter, just to see how the Apostle speaks about this gospel that was entrusted to him. The second verse is in brackets. The second verse is a parenthesis slipped in, a very important one, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, linking the gospel that we believe today with the Holy Scriptures that were written in the past. It's an absolutely false position for anyone to take, to say, I'm not concerned with the inspiration of the Old Testament I don't care whether Moses lived or whether he wrote anything. All I believe is the simple gospel. There isn't one. If you had attended the young people's meeting that was held on the last Sunday of the month, you would have seen that we were obliged to link together God so loved the world with a little word for God so loved the world with the fact that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And if you deny the serpent in the wilderness, you cannot go on and say, for, in like manner, just like that, God has sent his son. No, no. So I'm now going to leave out the parenthesis in order that we may see what the apostle said about this gospel. Romans 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God concerning his son. Now that's what you must keep in mind. There are those who speak of the gospel of God and stop there. Well, I believe I'm right in saying there's no such thing. God himself would not recognize a gospel that in any measure set aside the mediation of his son. There is no such thing as a gospel of God pure and simple. For God won't have it. All the way through the New Testament and back by the Old Testament types. It's the Father who sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. So we have the Gospel of God is concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Gospel of God. Now look at verse 16. The same Gospel is in view. For I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. Now is that a separate Gospel? Is that a different one? No, it's only looking at it from the other side. It's the Gospel of God as the author it's the gospel of Christ as the implement and the mediator. And until you've got those two together, you have no good news for dying men. For if it doesn't come from God, it's not worth a breath we waste on it. And if it's not focused in Christ, it will never be accomplished. But we are speaking about it. He is a glorious certainty. This man, this earthen vessel had this treasure. It was the gospel of God concerning his son and the gospel of Christ for which he was not ashamed. And he goes on to tell us why he wasn't ashamed. A very simple answer. He says, it works. It works. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believe it. And it's well for us to remember that this word power is the very word translated miracle in the gospel of Matthew. It wouldn't do us any harm sometimes to remind ourselves that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's a very miracle of God unto salvation. And you can't put your turning over a new leaf or signing a pledge or wearing a buttonhole. You can't put that there as a miracle. This is the work of God. Well now of course there are many other aspects and if I'm not careful I shall discover that this recording tape has run out before we're halfway through this inventory. I'll only draw your attention 
that he speaks not only of the gospel of God and the gospel of Christ, but he speaks of the gospel of grace and the gospel of glory. And in the Old Testament there's a passage which links together, he will give both grace and glory. And you'll never get glory, friends, without grace. So don't be so taken up with the gospel of glory to forget the gospel of grace that alone leads you there. And don't be so enamoured of the grace of God that you forget it's got a goal in view and sing at the end of your meeting and that will be glory for me. But we must have the two together the same as we have the gospel of God and the gospel of Christ. And then, in three or four passages, I'm leaving you to find them, in three or four passages, this servant of God, he was so enamoured of this trust given to him that he dares to say, my gospel, my gospel. He says it twice in Romans. And so we'll turn to the last chapter of Romans just to see the way in which he puts it there. The 16th chapter. Verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began but now is made manifest by the scriptures of the prophets. See, back again as he was in verse 2 of chapter 1. This gospel is making manifest something that was in the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. And all nations came in chapter 1 again if we'd have read further down. Well, we must leave the gospel unless we're going to stay on that one all the time. We could do well. And we'll take the next statement, because that may not be so easily appreciated. Quite a number of times he speaks as some word being entrusted to him. Underneath the word there on the right, I've got 2 Timothy 4.2, when he's giving his instruction to Timothy, when he speaks about the day of departure that was must come, he doesn't merely say, preach the gospel, but he says, preach the word. And there's a living power in the scriptures that verily if God chooses he can use a long list of names that nobody can pronounce properly to bring blessing and peace and salvation to somebody. The word of God in its integrity the Old Testament and the New is a part of our witness and we know not, not to find the queerest and most peculiar text that you could ever imagine that is false. But we can always be sure that if we faithfully handle the word of God, the God of the word is behind it. Preach the word, for a day will come, he said, well, that will not endure sound doctrine. But there are other passages which may need a little bit more uh, understanding. 2 Corinthians 5.19 will give us an example. I think we, will, we must read verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. How many times this word reconciliation has come? It comes again in the next verse. What is this statement? The word of reconciliation. 
Or supposing we suspend our inquiry and we look at some of the others. He speaks about the word of salvation or the word of faith. And I believe there's one that I ought to be included, the word of the cross, although I think it is translated in our version, the preaching of the cross. Does it merely mean saying the word cross? Saying the word reconciliation? No. You know the word logos in John the first chapter, the title of Christ, in the beginning was the word. And in that same chapter it explains the function of the word. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Well even that's not full enough. The word declared is the word exegesis. Now that may not be in everybody's vocabulary, but if I'm doing my work properly this evening, I am at least attempting an exegesis. Did you know that? I mean, you might tell some of your friends, oh, we don't really have a Bible study there on Thursday. We have an exegesis. And if anybody comes to see what an exegesis is like, I hope you go away satisfied. It simply means that Christ manifested that which was invisible, inaudible, intangible, and made God live in that very, as it were, uh, the very fact of his words, his life, so that Paul could say, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's not merely the word cross, or the word reconciliation, or the word faith, or the word truth. Oh no. The logos means a logical explanation. Take the word reconciliation again. It's good for us to remember and to acknowledge that this word reconciliation is never found in the ministry of Peter, James, John or Jude. If you want to know what reconciliation is, you've got to go to the apostle of the reconciliation and his name is Paul. And he gives you reconciliation from every point of view from the reconciliation of a world that was estranged by Adam's sin, the reconciliation of the Gentile world that were estranged by their idolatry, the reconciliation of the world at the fall of Israel, and the reconciliation of the members of the body in the new company, and the reconciliation of the whole company with their glorious destiny in heavenly places. Fancy. He calls that the word of reconciliation. But what a word. How full it is. I think he was not boasting when he said we have treasure in earthen vessels. But if you can go out into the world and proclaim as Paul does, we beseech you in God Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Surely that's a treasure. And how little we hear it. In fact, there are many people who would not, never be able to give you the passages or even quote them where this great subject of reconciliation comes in. Now, what about this third item? A good deposit. Now, you won't find that in the Scriptures, except perhaps in a marginal reference. But we'll turn to Second Timothy in order to see. Paul is writing... In the first instance, a private letter. I don't think he knew that he was writing scripture. And I think we do well sometimes to remove the word epistle from our vocabulary and call them letters. Because an epistle means something which is highly polished, 
written in order that it might be either printed or at least circulated. I'm sure if I was going to write an epistle, I should take a little bit more care over it than I do some of my letters. You can't help yourself. Time presses. I wish to goodness sometimes they wouldn't want so many letters written because the other thing's waiting so much. So there are letters, that's all. And the Apostle Paul had no idea that he was writing an epistle for somebody else to read. He was writing to his son Timothy in a day of departure, in a day of persecution, and all he was calling upon him from every point of view to stand fast and hold fast to the word entrusted. So Paul says, I'm finished. The day of my departure has come. And you, Timothy, you've got to stand in my shoes. And he seemed to be a most unlikely person. But he was a timid, shrinking sort of person. But God, you see, is not concerned about whether you're timid or shrinking. The grace of God that enabled the Apostle Paul could enable Timothy and anybody else to stand if only they trust him. So he says to him, verse 8 of chapter 1, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. He's very concerned about being ashamed. Look at it again. Verse 11. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. Oh, that's twice. Well, we might as well get the next one. Verse 16, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Anisiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed. And then the whole thing's focused in the second chapter, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Was it that as this man neared the day when he knew the next conscious moment would be standing before the judgment seat of Christ, he was very, very concerned that neither he nor Timothy nor others should in any sense be ashamed? Or would you say, we've already found that he was on the same track when he wrote Romans, long, long while earlier. Yes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Oh, perhaps it's a good thing that we have this emphasised for there is a possibility that the boldest of us and the noblest of us can sometimes turn back or be ashamed. Here's the exhortation. Well, now what about this good deposit? We haven't got to that, have we? Or we come back to verse 12. He was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have been in, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Well, I want you to remember there's no pronoun I. It doesn't say which I have committed unto him. It doesn't say who committed anything. It simply reads that he is able to keep that which has been committed That's all against that day. Now look further down. Verse 14. That good thing which was committed unto thee. Oh, well, the next time he makes it clear that it was something committed to Timothy. And then, chapter 2, verse 2, And the things that thou hast heard of me, among many witnesses, the same commit now. Commit, commit, commit. Paul was not committing his soul to the keeping of the Lord, as a hymn in the Sankey's book makes so many thousands sing. He said, something's been committed to me. But I know he can keep it. They may put me in prison, but they take my life. 
They may destroy the earthen vessel, but he'll watch over the treasure. He'll pour it out into another one, Timothy or somebody else, before that takes place. Now, you might as well get the other passage. It's waiting for you almost on the same page of your Bible. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Well, there, I think that's enough emphasis, isn't it? Now, that has been translated, that good thing which has been committed, it's been translated, the good deposit. Something has been deposited with Paul, with Timothy, and with those that Timothy passed it on to, a special phase and aspect of truth. Well, some of us know that the Apostle claimed that to him had been given a special revelation that nobody else had and nobody else shared, and that is called the mystery, the characteristic of the present interval in which we live. But we have got that before us in our next uh, series. Now you see, that's a long list. There are some folks who antagonise the attitude that we, or that I will speak for myself, take in this meeting. And because they can find the word mystery in Matthew 13, or in 1 Corinthians 4, or in Romans 16, and somewhere else, they say, oh, it's all one and the same. But Paul says he was a steward of the mysteries of God. There were many mysteries that were revealed to and through the Apostle Paul long before our particular calling came into view. And so the present dispensation of the mystery is the crown and the final phase of a whole series of secrets that the Lord used the Apostle Paul to bring to men. Peter had one message. He had some wonderful teaching. And I've been looking into the seven references that he makes about the things that are precious. And they're well worth looking into. What if Peter is an earthen vessel and on the label it says seven precious things? That's wonderful, isn't it? And if on the label we look on the earthen vessel of Paul and we see a tremendous list of secrets that the God of grace and love has never revealed to anybody else in the way that he revealed to this man. Are we going to quarrel with God? Are we not going to be thankful that he did stoop and use one person to make these wonderful things known? Well now, look at the list of them. In Romans 16, we have a secret and I think we ought perhaps to go back there uh, I can't deal with this like I can deal with any of it. It's only a list. But some have said, oh, this is the mystery of the present dispensation tacked on to the end of Romans. We'll give it a, another reading. Romans 16:25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began kept secret or hushed up since the world began, but is now made manifest. Well, the secret of Ephesians 3 was before the world began and was not made known till Paul became the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles and Paul was a free man when he wrote Romans. So you see, you've got to be watchful. And then in Romans, while we have it in the 11th chapter, there's another important secret that he calls attention to. Romans the 11th chapter, verse 25. And he prefaces it by a little, little uh, term that is used elsewhere. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant 
He's very polite about it. Uh, but he says more than once in his epistles, I would not that you should be ignorant. Well, there's a reason then, there's something we ought to be careful about. I would not that you be ignorant of this mystery. What mystery, Paul? Or lest you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Well, will Israel ever have an opportunity? Will they ever be able to enjoy the blessings that God took oath to swear to them? Oh, yes. And so, all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Zion and Jacob. You can't hardly say that means the Gentile church, can you? For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. That's referring to the covenant made and referred to in Jeremiah. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, and that's what people say. They say they're, they're now blinded, they're now hardened, they're enemies, and God has transferred the blessings that he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to the church. But he doesn't say so here. He says, as concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. If you go teaching that God can make such solemn promises as he has through the whole of the Old Testament, calling upon heaven and earth to witness that he will keep his word, and then at the end we find he's broken it, for what over we? If he can break his word with Israel, he can break his word with the Gentiles. And we are taking away the very foundations upon which all our hopes rest, that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Well then we have another mystery, which is a very, very important one, but exceedingly difficult. The first of Timothy, chapter 3, 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. I'd like just to go back into verse 15. He's speaking in chapter 3 about bishops and deacons and how to behave yourself in the church. Verse 15, But if I tarry long, I'm writing this, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Uh, that doesn't seem to ring quite true. An ordinary, separated little church in which there's a bishop and a deacon, is that the pillar and ground of truth? Is the greatest church, the biggest church, with all the archbishops and what they have, is that the pillar and ground of truth? What do you say? It seems to say so here. Well, friends, there are no full stops or commas in the original of the New Testament. And if they're in the way, we can move them. So we go back again. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, full stop. Nobody can say I mustn't put it there. And then there's no word thee. Not thee. A pillar and ground of truth and confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. Brings in that subject like that. And this mystery of godliness is God was manifest in the flesh. And you mustn't expect to understand how it is that God could be manifest in the flesh as though you can solve all problems. The very Bible says this is a confessedly great mystery. And yet people come up to you and want you to explain how it is that God could be manifest in the flesh. 
Well, the honest answer is, I don't know, friends. All I know, I'm warned that it's the truth. But I'm warned it's confessedly great. And I'm glad to admit it. But there it is. There is a mystery which you find. Now, the mystery of godliness is balanced or contrasted with the mystery of iniquity. You see, godliness is one side, and that is the person of Christ. Iniquity is the other, and that is the person of the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. The son of perdition, who opposes and exalted himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped. So that he as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see, the mystery of godliness is being travestied. Verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. So Paul has revealed two intimate mysteries. One, the mystery of godliness, which focuses our attention upon Christ. The other, the mystery of iniquity, which focuses our attention upon the Antichrist. And then we have others. <clears throat> the mystery of his will. The mystery itself, which we were reading just now in Ephesians 3. The mystery of Christ, which is not exactly the same. The mystery was revealed to the Apostle Paul alone. But the mystery of Christ was revealed to other ages and other prophets and other apostles. All the way down since Genesis was written, the mystery of Christ has been unfolded. But, said the Apostle, if you will compare what I have had revealed to me of the mystery of Christ, and see how it excels anything that any writer before me has ever been able to put down, then you may perhaps be willing to believe that in association with that has been also revealed to me the mystery which includes his believing people as well. The mystery of Christ is his position. Is he revealed as king to sit upon the throne of his father David? Then you're dealing with kingdom truth and the people of Israel. Is he revealed as the bridegroom? then the company of believers will be called the bride, and you will be in the new Jerusalem. Is he revealed as the head? Then the company of believers is the body, and you'll be far above all principality in heavenly places. So the mystery of Christ and the mystery of the dispensation walks hand in hand. Well, now we have in Ephesians 3.9, I think we must refer to that because of the revised version, Ephesians 3.9 Our version reads And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God. You can see why it's a mystery that couldn't be shared by anybody else and wasn't known by prophets beforehand but it was hid in God from the foundation of the world or before the world was. Or as Colossians 1 repeats it was hid away from the generations and the ages but now is revealed. So that's the character of the mystery. Now he says, verse 9, it's been given to me to enlighten all as to what is the fellowship. Now I, I put on this chart the dispensation, but I put against it revised version. And you know that in the days when the authorised version was translated, any amount of priceless documents were unknown. But today... There are Greek manuscripts that go back hundreds of years before those which they had then. And the consensus of opinion of those who have the right to speak 
They say that the word fellowship must be removed and the word dispensation must be put in its place. And as I've explained before, but I'll mention again as it is being recorded, you can quite understand how as these books were written by hand over and over and over again and what a weariness it is to write page after page after page. The word fellowship begins with three letters, K-O-I. And the word dispensation begins with three letters, O-I-K. And if you've never made a mistake like that, you haven't done much writing, that's all I know. It goes on over and over, all over the place. You get these, you look at a, a, a verse, it ends with a special word, and sure enough, you go miss out four to five verses and pick up the word somewhere else and go on. That you'll find in the Greek manuscript. And then another one will look at a verse, you'll see a certain word, and you go back and write the whole lot again and forget that he's done it. And there it is. It's all explained humanly. So, that's the dispensation of the mystery. And then we have the uh, Christ among you, the hope of glory of this mystery, and then Colossians 2, which I must refer to in passing. Colossians 2. Now, the light has gone up, friends, and that means our time is limited, running out. Colossians 2, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now again, going back to these earlier manuscripts, it reads like this, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and it makes a stop, and we put a little dash, Christ. Just like that. Leaves all the other out. To the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. Christ. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What a simple issue, but what a tremendous one. Now this leads me to the riches. You see, I've got some more. And right at the very end of the riches, it says riches of full assurance. Well, here they are. Verse 2. This is one of the treasures in this earthen vessel that he can come to you and me and he can give us such a standing in Christ and such an acceptance in the beloved that we can have full assurance oh that's riches indeed what a poverty it is not to know whether you're saved or lost not to know where you're going not to know whether you've got a chart or compass that's trustworthy not to know whether your anchor will hold in the storms of life but he says here it is full assurance so if any people in this land or anywhere else, can stand up and sing the opening verse, Blessed Assurance. We should be the ones, for we have it grounded in this rock of ages. Well, now we go back. Riches of grace. Riches of glory have got more text than all the lot put together. There are riches of grace. There are riches of glory. There are exceeding riches in some of them. Overwhelming. So that the word used means an exaggeration and wouldn't be true if God weren't speaking. And among other things, there is a, a practical application of the riches of glory. I'll leave all the rest for Philippians chapter 4. At the end of this epistle, the apostle tells them that he's so glad, verse 10, that their care of him has flourished again. He said, I acknowledge that you lacked opportunity. Verse 10. 
But he says, I don't want you to think I speak in respect to want. I'm not asking you to send me something. For I have learned, in whatsoever state I am, not merely therewith to be content, leave the word therewith out it in italics, for I have learned, in whatsoever state I am, to be independent. That's the true meaning of the word content. What a blessed place to be in. A man in prison, right in the thumb of the outside, he says, I've learned to be independent of whether I'm inside or out, as long as I'm in Christ and in line of his will. Then he goes on to say, notwithstanding, verse 14, in spite of my independence, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. You see, it goes backwards and forwards over this. You, oh yes, and I, I admit you said right from the very beginning, no other church communicated with me with regard to this than you. Oh, but he says in verse 17, not that I desire a gift, I'd be a terrible bad one for sending begging letters, wouldn't I? It'd be all peppered all over with, don't think I'm asking you for anything. Well, better not give me the job then. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all. Here's a man in prison. I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odour of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. What a definition to give of a little parcel sent by friends to a prisoner. That's this man. Now, his last word. All you've sent me something, but my God, my God, shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. In Christ Jesus, or by Christ Jesus. Well, that's been a scamper, it's been a hurry through, but these are some of the riches, the unsearchable riches, some of them, the treasure in that earthen vessel, which we know as Paul the Apostle. He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name. And thank God, as far as it's humanly possible, he did bear that name. And he did receive treasure. And he did pour it out. For one of the words that he used at the time of his end, he said, I am now about to be offered. And that word means to be poured out like a drink offering. I am now about to be poured out. Well, that's what you do with a vessel. And then you put the vessel away if you're done with it. But the Lord couldn't look after vessels as well. And one day will he'll call all those who've served him and served him faithfully. And what an honour it will be then if we discover that we've not merely been like vessels of earth and vessels of wood, but we can be cast upon the vessels of honour that are meet for the Master's use. That's the incentive we have in this life. And that is the finest thing to look forward to in that day to realise that it has been possible.